Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel, but today, but not, not today, but this year, this January, in a few months, King's Chapel is celebrating its 22nd birthday from their first public worship, January 1997. Pretty good. 22 years. And it is our hope that as we continue uh, for a long time, that we are a church that is centered around the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. We're, we're a gospel-centered church, which means all that we do, all that we are, is centered on Jesus Christ, his, his virgin birth, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and resurrection from the grave. It, it is through the gospel of grace that we are reconciled to God. We're forgiven, redeemed, uh, uh, freely given by faith, the imputation of Christ's righteousness counted to us by faith, and that's our new identity as gospel people. So this morning, what I want to do is, is I want to talk about core values for a little bit, kind of a two-part sermon. So the hospitality is going to come forward and get your lunch menu. Anything you want, we'll bring sandwiches in. No, just kidding. Uh, although I don't have a clock anymore, but I'm just saying. I want to talk about core value. Yeah, I want to talk about core values while we have everybody together. We usually do this every year. We haven't done it in two years. So it really does fit into our text this morning, which is 2 Samuel chapter 1, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So you could turn there. We're going to get there in a little while. But I want to talk to you about our core values, all right? Our core values, our new identity, the, the heart of what we do is, is, is the message we declare. Uh, the, uh, and the church is declaring the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel is not simply that God is love and holy and I need a savior. He died for me, rose for me, forgives me of my sins. It's that. It's the beginning of that. But it's so much more. The gospel, our, our gospel-centeredness in our church, in our core values, is that the infinite love of God has come in the gospel. And by God's grace, sheer grace alone, I'm totally accepted in Jesus Christ. And, and that reality, that truth, that gospel message must penetrate and infiltrate and control all of life. Your life, my life, and the life of our church. Therefore, the gospel is not an addition to the ministry of the church. It is centered on the, 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 the ministries are centered on the gospel. And the gospel must be the center the hub of all that we do. It was Joe Thorne who said, the gospel-centered life is a life where a Christian experiences a growing personal reliance on the gospel. And that gospel protects him, protects him from depending on his own religious performance and being seduced and overwhelmed by idols. He goes on to say, gospel-centered people, the gospel-centered churches are driven by the love of God. The love of Jesus on his behalf. Gospel-centered people are focused on Christ, his finished work, his present work, and his future work, end quote. That's what King's Chapel is all about, centered on the gospel. You look at our text this morning. We'll get to that in a little bit, as I said. When we talk about David, we're going to see David's anointing as king. And it's really all about, Second Samuel is all about the kingdom of God that's under the kingship of David the second king of Israel. And a gospel-centered life and a, and a, and a gospel-centered church can be succinctly said that it's a life, a church life, a personal life, our life lived under the rulership and reign of King Jesus. If you're a Christian, he is now king and master of your life. And although the way people live under this rulership, under this authority, under this reigning King Jesus may look differently in, in different cultural contexts. The foundation 
of that life will not change because the gospel may be a countercultural message, but it's also given in a cultural context. So methods may be different. Churches may be different. They, they may have a guy who wears a robe and, and they have an organ. We have a band and I'm not wearing a robe, right? That's not going to happen. And many of you live in different cultural contexts, whether it's in school, your neighborhoods, your workplace, your universities, are very different. But the message stays the same. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear. He says this, I have delivered to you, church, of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scripture. He was buried and raised, and and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than 500, and then he appeared to James, and then to me, last of all. That's the message of the gospel. That doesn't change. It doesn't change in any cultural context. What changes the methods by which we declare it, the ways in which we demonstrate it, that changes, but the message doesn't change. And as a church, King Chapel has put together three core values to kind of succinctly put together what we are about, mainly what we are about, but also it teaches us what we're not about. And these are the core values. You've never seen them before. Uh, I hope you have. It's on our wall. It's, uh, it's on our literature. We are a church of three core values, eternity, identity, community. Eternity, identity, community. We have bumper stickers if you want one. They're out there. E-I-C. The eternity is simply the gospel of redemption. The gospel of redemption. We are are a fellowship. We are the gathering of Christ followers who believe that we have been created. That's right. I don't know what they tell you in your school, but we've been created by God for his glory and for our joy. We were created in his image and likeness. It means that we were created in the Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God. And part of that image-bearing reality for us means that we were created not simply to worship God, but we were created as worshipers, as part of the Imago Dei. It's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. And we were created as worshipers for all eternity because God is eternal. Not in the same way we are, right? So God has no beginning and no end. But we were created in such a way that we were made to be worshipers of the one true God in all eternity for all time. But Adam sinned, Genesis 3. He didn't trust the goodness of God. And and he wanted to be his own savior, his own Lord, his own king. And death entered the world. And then we were separated from God, Genesis chapter 3. Romans chapter 5 says that Adam sinned and therefore sin entered the world. And that all men have sinned and are guilty before God. That's what Romans teaches us. And therefore, all creation continues to worship, but they're worshiping false things. They're worshiping idols. They're worshiping things that can never satisfy. And therefore, every one of us have violated, because of our sin, the first commandment. Have no other God before me, the Lord says. You shall not bow down, you not serve them, for I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God. And rather than leave us dead, condemned, and in our sin, the Father sent his Son to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. He rescued us from the penalty of sin. He died to overcome death, to overcome the grave, to defeat Satan. Jesus redeemed us by his sacrificial death, his substitutionary death on the cross. And we receive that gift by faith through the work of Jesus Christ. So, 
whatever your circumstances today, whatever your questions might be today, whatever your, your, your concerns are today, there's one grave concern for every single human being. And that is how do you and I become reconciled to a holy God? Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him, that's God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, eternity, gospel redemption, is the chief and highest purpose of all that we do. It answers that question that brings us into eternity, either in separation from God or with God in all eternity. And that supreme reality that we believe here in this church and what the scripture clearly teaches us drives everything we do, whether it's social concern, whether it's social justice, and any other forms that we use and methods we use to demonstrate God's love to people, the first and primary importance is be reconciled to God. That's the most important question. How do men and women become reconciled to God? It is only through the gospel. Therefore, eternity gospel redemption means we are a gathering of Christ followers who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, brings us back into a right relationship with an eternal God through the gospel for God's glory to see the beauty and magnificence of God and our joy. That's what gospel redemption stands for. The second one is identity. Gospel transformation. Here's the good news. God didn't just send his son to die on a cross and rise from the dead and then leave us as orphans. It says in John that he sent his Holy Spirit to, to dwell within us, to live with us. God the Father sent God the Son and God the Father and the Son sent his Spirit to indwell us, to give us life, to empower us to live for his glory. This core value, identity, gospel transformation has to do with the way we live the way we work, the way we communicate, the way we live life out in our families and in other places. It it is the way in which we, we become more like Jesus Christ. It is the same gospel of grace that rescues us. It is the same gospel of grace that transforms us. Romans chapter 8 says that God foreknew us, but he also predestined us, gonna happen, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God is doing. If you're fighting against that and you're a believer in Christ, it's going to hurt. It's called sanctification. It's becoming more like Jesus. The process by which God becomes more real, a more reality in our life, and he has more reign and rule in our life. He's the ultimate reality of our heart. Little by little, we are now working out, listen, working out the gospel uh, transformation, working out the identity of gospel people in our life. Becoming more like Jesus, dealing with sin, repenting of sin, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, dealing in relationships. And so God is working in, his, in our lives so that we become more kind and, and, and more in ways which reflect Jesus. Now what happens is when we talk about transformation, what happens is it's very easy to slip into, we say we call it here religion. We don't mean, we don't mean Christianity is a religion. What we mean when we say stay away from religion is that Religion teaches us, other philosophies and other religious leaders teach us this. If we obey, if we follow the rule, if we do what we're told, if we give, if we, if we follow a certain path, at that point, then God will, will love you. And God will care for you. God will accept you. God will forgive you. And God will give you a, a prosperous, good life. But you have to follow these commands. That's religion. That's what everyone teaches. That's not the gospel. 
The gospel is I am loved. The gospel is I am forgiven. The gospel is I am a child of God, not because of what I have done or will do, but because of what Christ has already done. What Christ has already done. His perfect life imputed to me. His righteousness imputed to me. I become a child and therefore, I'll obey God. I'll obey God. We're not against the commands of God. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. That's what he said. But what we're against is using the law as some sort of moral standard to which God will then love me and bless me. But yet, we can't live up to that standard. But we recognize that the obedience to Christ, a life pleasing to the Lord, flows, now it's important, flows out of a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving of his infinite love and immeasurable grace in the gospel. It's a slippery slope. We catch ourselves, if you're a believer here, there are times in your life and in my life where we are trying to earn our way into God's favor. We've got to remember, Jesus already has done it. Paul, told the, uh, Paul asked the church of, of Galatia, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or did you receive the Spirit by hearing of faith, by hearing of the gospel? The answer is by faith, through the gospel. Later in chapter 5, he says this, very important. He says, if you are being led by the Spirit that was given to you by grace through the gospel, then you are not under the law. To be under the law is different than obeying the law. To be under the law means that you're trusting in the law, you're trusting in your obedience, you're trusting in the things that God has commanded us to do in order to be right with God. That's being under the law, being suppressed by the law. Trying to earn a performance-based earning of your salvation. It means to make your performance, your performance, obedience to the law, the way in which you identify your life with God. That's not the case. And sometimes we think that the more I do, the more I give, and the more I participate, whether it's church or, or financially, whatever it is, therefore God will accept me and love me by obeying. But if you're obeying God and trying to look more like Jesus, if you, if you are obeying God and trying to look more like Jesus through the gospel, then you're living by the Spirit. Does that make sense? Tim Keller writes this. Well, yeah, let me say this. He says, the gospel, the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just entrance into the kingdom, forgiveness of sin, redemption from sin, Satan, death, and hell, but the gospel is also the way we make our progress in our sanctification, in growing in likeness of Christ. The gospel is the way we grow. It is the solution of each problem, is the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier, end quote. One of the, I could go on for days, but let me just give you one instance of scripture. In Galatians chapter two, and I've used this often, if you heard it, I'm sorry, it's just, it's just perfect illustration. Peter is in a place and he's fellowshipping with Peter the Jew, is fellowshipping with Greeks. He hears that our other Jews are coming to his, where he is at, and he immediately separates himself from hanging out with his Greek friends because he's a Jew, he can't hang out with Greeks. But because of the gospel, he was. Because the gospel flattens everything. We're all children of God through the gospel. But all of a sudden, Peter got a little bit of some racism, and Paul confronts Peter. 
not with the law, but with the gospel. He says, Peter, you're not living in step of the gospel. If the gospel is true and that all of us come the same way, and that is through faith and the work of Jesus, who are you to be racist? It is application of the gospel. That's important to us here. That's, we, we want to be a people who obey God. We want to be a people who follow the commands of God. We want to be a people who walk closely with Jesus and do what Master Jesus tells us. But we want to be a people, listen, that do it for the right motives. That's why we're gospel-centered in our preaching. Because he's always the hero. And if we can get you to fall in love with deeper and deeper with the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done, you will, I will, walk closely with Christ. Out of obedience, yes, but out of love and gratitude. It's a slippery slope. We have to be very, very careful. Identity, gospel transformation. We are a gathering of Christ followers who, by the gospel of grace are constantly applying the truth of our new gospel identity in humility and repentance for real gospel change. I hope that's what you hear when you come through this door. Not moralistic preaching, but gospel-centered preaching. Number three, EIC, community. Gospel restoration. Two aspects to this part of our core value. One is monastic and one is missional. When we say monastic gathering, we talk... It comes from the word monastery, where they gather together in the monastery. It's a reference to the corporate gathering here Sunday morning as we gather together in God's people. And as we gather in community, in community groups. We break into smaller groups and we, and we live life together in our homes. The 13 groups that meet here at King's Chapel. Where do you find that? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Gather for the apostle teaching, broke bread in homes. Not rocket science. Some people say, you know what? There's not, Sunday morning is not very important. We don't agree. We don't agree. Some people say it's, it's, it's either or. We say, no, it's both and. We need to be gathering together as God's people, worshiping together on the, on the Lord's day, and breaking in homes, breaking to get, you know, getting together, breaking out in homes around our communities. We, we believe here at King's Chapel that both those realities are absolutely necessary in discipleship. Gathering together, worshiping as a, as a children as a whole, and then breaking into smaller groups. Both are important as we share life together. Christ followers, if you're, if you're new here and you're living like a lone ranger, we're not created to live life alone. God is one. But he's revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect unity. But with us, I know you're probably thinking, not with me, but yeah, you too. There's no perfect unity. Right? Community can be messy. We must always go back to the gospel. That's what living life together. We live in life. We live, we live humbly. We live uh, forgiving one another, loving one another, speaking the truth and love to one another. I say this all the time. I just think it's so important. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, Adam was alone and God said it's not good for a man to be alone. That was before sin entered the world. Adam's ache for community was in his perfection, not sin. That's the way God created us. That's part of the Imago Dei. The Bible calls us brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, don't just, don't just pass that right away. Brothers and sisters in Christ has, a, has many radical implications. Right? 
We're not just members of a a religious organization. We're brothers and sisters in Christ because of the gospel. That means that we are radically committed to each other. We're family. We're a community with one parent. God is our father. Right? And, And therefore, brothers and sisters have certain claims upon your life, certain claims upon your resource i mean think about it when one of your blood relatives brother or sister one of your one of your um biological uh, siblings is in trouble the one you like <laughs> there's a sense of obligation is there not financial resources their family so we're, we're a community of people that live out the gospel together Caring for one another, loving one another. And can we do it better? Absolutely. These core values are not something we got down pat. I'm not saying that. We could do it better. But we are to love each other as brothers and sisters love each other as we gather together and worship and growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Secondly, it's called, we call it mission or missional. That simply means that we live as missionaries. We're a gathering of community that lives as missionaries. We are on the Missio Dei, the mission of God. God, it was seen in Scripture as the first missionary, right? Adam sinned. God did what? Sought after Adam. Where are you? He knew where he was. But we see God going after sinful, rebellious Adam early on in Scripture. Jesus said in John that he is, God is seeking worshipers, remember? We are the people with a purpose. We are people with a purpose. In word and deed, we are participating with God, going to work with God, right? It's a father, father and son, father and daughter day at work to spread the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. He died for our sins. He took the wrath we deserve. He defeated Satan, death, and hell. And we invite everyone locally here in the Glenmont area and surrounding area and globally, we have global partners, to come and experience the love of God the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, and the joy, the real joy, the eternal joy of God. The Missio Dei, the mission of God, is the Trinitarian God sending his people on mission. John chapter 20, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. God's mission is throughout the scripture. He's a missionary working, and he's working, and, he's, and our purpose is to join him. In reaching the lost for his glory. It doesn't start in God. I've said this before too. When you ask somebody, where does the mission of God or where does the the missionary of God or the mission of God begin, many people will tell you in Matthew's gospel, that is not true. The Great Commission. God has been on mission since Adam. Through the people of God, through through the, the nation of Israel, now through the church. Covenant focus and purpose of the coming of Jesus is to redeem and reach all nations. All nations. And that's including the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's still about Jesus. Community. Community. On mission for the glory of God. We're a church that exists for the glory of God. So that the world will see his immeasurable worth and value and praise and worship him. We participate in God's mission, the Missio Dei. We are to live as he lives. We are to love as he loves. We are to pursue that in which he pursues. That's lost people. First Peter says this, that we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. 
We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's his people. For his own possession, he says, that we may what? Be, be, uh, that we may proclaim the excellencies, not to be selfish, but to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, plural, y'all, called all of us, his children, he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, Peter says, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, now you receive mercy. That's the gospel. Then he goes on to say, I urge you as sojourners, exiles, we belong, our citizens in heaven, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't live like everybody else does. But through the gospel, wage war, uh, the passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and bring glory to God. When a people gather as a community under King Jesus, when a people gather recognizing his lordship and they're living out their gospel identity, a new gospel community is formed. And restoration to what God is ultimately going to do in the world has begun. It becomes visible. Therefore, gospel community, the restoration, is that we are a gathering of Christ followers who live life together, see what it says on the screen, working out the gospel implications with one another and scatter into the world on mission as missionaries to demonstrate to love people and good deeds and proclaim the truth of the gospel and the word of God, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are, a people of eternal. Listen, we, we are a people of the eternal God being rescued by the gospel, given a new identity, live life together, and bring him glory to the God of the gospel. That's what we're about. All of, this, all of this we can say is what life is like for us as a church, as I said earlier, to live under the reign and rule of Christ. Our text this morning, and I'll, I'll be quick with it. We're going to come back to it next week. Our text this morning is very important is the coronation, is the crowning, the public crowning of King David. The gravity of our text this morning is hard to grasp. It's very important. It is the first time that we see God's chosen king reigning visibly on the earth. It's a small beginning, which we'll see in a minute. But it's a concrete, visible, earthly kingdom under King David. With David, God's people were to live, listen, under under his kingship as David lives under the kingship of God. He is his representative on the earth. Remember, that was Saul's problem. Saul did not want to submit to God. He wanted to be his own king, his own thing, and, and not listen and respond in faith to God. He wanted to run his, his own life and to be his own king. Not David. David's a different kind of king. David's a different kind of king who establishes a different kind of kingdom. The word kingdom in the scripture, Old and New Testament, means the reign and rule of God, okay? Kingdom, reign, and rule of God. That's the first thing it should mean to you. That's what it means in scripture. Secondarily, over the people that he reigns. But primarily, the word kingdom means king, the reign and rule of God. Jesus, if you remember, came on the scene, Mark chapter 1. What does he say? The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm here. Repent, turn from your sin, and believe the gospel. 
the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the true king. David's reign was always meant to point us, to show us, the beginning here on earth, what the true king will will look like and who he will be. It is Jesus. Jesus will reign, listen, in his kingdom supremely and will restore all things when he comes. But his first coming shows us that a true king and a true kingdom has come. It inaugurates the kingdom. When God will come back and he will restore all things, he will fix all things. There'll be no more fear. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more tears. Joy will be permanent and the human redeemed race will be unified. But not yet. There's still poverty. There's still injustice. There's still hunger. There's still disease. There's still death. But in the reign of Christ, in the finality of the coming kingdom, it will be gone. So, you need to understand this. The kingship... The reign of Christ is both a present reality as he reigns and rules over his people and a present reality when he comes and reigns and rules in the final kingdom when all that stuff, all the sin and all the brokenness will be restored. And if you here this morning have crowned Jesus as your king and Lord and submitted to his rule over you, you're in the kingdom. Now I need you to pay attention here. Listen. The church is not the kingdom of God. The embassy, the outpost, yes, the gathering of God's people demonstrating what life is like under King Jesus as we wait for him to return to establish his kingdom. But remember, it's first the reign and rule of God. George Ladd writes this. The church, therefore, is not the kingdom of God. God's kingdom creates the church and works in the world through the church. Men cannot... Therefore, build the kingdom of God or the church, but they can preach it and proclaim it. They can receive it or reject it, end quote. God's saving, reigning rule came into this world in Jesus Christ like never before. God promises to his, to his kingdom, God's promise to his kingdom is begun. It will one day usher in when Jesus comes back. And now, folks, little by little, as we live out our core values, as we live out our gospel identity, our hope as a church, no matter what size the church is, no matter how many meeting places we have, is that little by little by little, people will get to see what life is going to be like when Jesus, the king, reigns and rules in his new kingdom. Okay, does that make sense? I hope it does. In Jesus, God's rule has invaded the world. But the finality we will see when it comes. But people ought to get a glimpse, and that's what our core value is all about. There are other ways to live in the kingdom. We talk about the Beatitude. We could be talk, we could have a series for years. As a church, we live under the reign and rule of King Jesus, and we live it out in the gospel. That is the primary purpose of gospel redemption, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, being transformed and looking like Jesus, living community together, and then living on mission for God. That's what it's like to live under the reign of Christ. In our narrative, if you're there, I hope so, 2 Samuel, I'm going to hit it quickly. As I said, in our narrative, David's kingship is a glimpse of what God is going to do in Christ. They are called to be a people in Israel to live under David as David lives under God. The kingdom will come. 
And I want to see three things. And again, I'll hit it quickly. The coronation of the king. The invitation of the king. And the opposition of the kingdom. Okay? That's where we're going. Again, we'll go, we'll go quickly. Second Samuel is about the reign of David. Okay? He's going to shine. David's going to shine. David's going to be a, a, a good king, but not a perfect king. David's going to fail. David's going to fall miserably because he's not meant to be the ultimate king. King Jesus is, right? Saul is dead, remember. David's good friend, Saul's son, Jonathan, is dead. His sons, not all of them, we'll see in a minute, are dead. The Philistines have defeated Israel in the Mount of Galboa. They're now in charge. They went into the cities of Israel where they're living. That's how 1 Samuel closes. Last week, 2 Samuel opened up with the morning of Saul. David finds out that the king is dead, and, he, and Jonathan is dead, and he mourns, and he weeps all day and all night. He's broken over the reality of the king of Israel being dead. Not just for the king, not for Jonathan. Look what it says, chapter 2, verse 11. For the people of the Lord and the house of Israel. Remember, David's been in the wilderness. David's been running from this megalomaniac called Saul, the king. And you would think, you would think, that David now hears about his death and would rejoice, but that's not what he does. It's interesting to note that David has been running for a long time. He's 30, 40 years old. He's been in the wilderness, and God has been squeezing him in that pressure cooker. Remember, we talked about that, that he was learning obedience through suffering. It was Thomas Carlyle, a a Scottish historian, said this, for one man who can stand prosperity, for one man who can stand prosperity, there'll be a hundred that can stand for adversity, end quote. What he's saying is sometimes It's harder to do the right thing, to walk in faith, when there is prosperity, sometimes. It's in adversity that we learn to lean on the Lord, to seek the Lord, to rely upon the Lord in our adversity. You don't have to raise your hand, but how does your prayer life do when you are faced with a struggle, a trial, some trouble? A lot better, doesn't it? Hear the word of the Lord. He's mourning weeping, Saul is dead, and now the kingship should be David's. Chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, verses 1 through 7. 1 through 4. After this, after her hearing the news, after being broken about the death of Saul, after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, where am I going to go? He said to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam and Jezreel, Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and there they anointed David, what? King over the house of Judah. The king is learning. Notice what he does. Before his public anointing, before his his public coronation by the people, what does David do? He seeks the Lord. What what you're witnessing here is a king who, who is being established 
as a king, right? He kind of was the waiting king. And he's, he, he's seeking. He, he's under, he, he's, he's hearing from God. He, he's seeking after, he's inquiring of the Lord. Who, unlike Saul, wanted to do his own thing. And now here is seeking God. He is humbling himself under the Lord. He is recognizing that his power and his authority as the king is subjected under the king and ruler, God himself. Guys, if you're married, you want to get married, the authority you have in your home is not yours. It's delegated authority. You want to do the right thing, submit to authority. Men who submit to authority can lead others in authority. That wasn't Saul, but that is certainly David. He recognizes, even though, listen, even though the purposes of God, even though the promises of God were coming true for David, he knew that. Everyone knew he was king. He was next in line. What does he do, even though he knows? He seeks the Lord. He seeks his guidance. He seeks his will. He's been running for a long time. You would think he's like, Saul's dead. There's no king. Now's my chance. I don't have to ask anyone. The door's open. That's not what he does. He seeks the Lord. He, he seeks guidance from God. If you remember, it was Saul is seeking at the end of his life, and it was, it was quiet because God had rejected him, and David is seen over and over being that faithful one who goes to the prophets, who goes to the priests to hear and to listen to what God has to say, and God tells him, go up. David's like, well, where am I going to go? I'm going to go, but where? To Hebron. It's the largest city in Judah. David didn't have a big army, but people started gathering around David, men and women and children. What did Jesus compare the kingdom of God to? That mustard seed. That seed that is planted that will grow to the place of the whole earth will be established. The new heaven and the new earth. The new reign and rule of the king. And here's David being crowned. His kingdom is small. And it's in Hebron. Abraham and his wife are buried there. Isaac, Jacob, his wives are buried there. Hebron's a very strategic place. Hebron was the first place that was promised as a piece of property for Abraham. You see what the narrator, see what God is doing? He is connecting David. He's connecting David to the promise of Abraham. To that promise of Adam, to Abraham, and to David. That's the key. That's the key. If you want to understand David, you've got to understand the promise of Abraham. You've got to understand the promise of, of, of Adam in Genesis 3, then the Abraham, then the David. The Bible opens up, Matthew chapter 1. What does it say? Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. David's connection to Abraham is unlocked for us when we look at the life of Jesus. Here, Jesus, excuse me, David is being crowned king, a visible reality of the kingdom. Number two, the invitation, verse four, again, B. When they told David, right, so he's gone to Judah, he's being crowned. Then they tell him, listen, David, the men of Jabesh Gilead who, who buried Saul, it was the men there that buried Saul, verse five. David hears this and says, send men to Jabesh Gilead and tell them this. Tell them this. May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you 
And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. The end of Samuel, if you remember, Saul is defeated. He dies. His children get killed. And the men, the Philistines, take their bodies, strip their bodies, and they nail them, stripped to a wall. And it was Jabez Gilead who, out of, out of gratitude, for, because Paul, you remember Saul had rescued them earlier, it is in gratitude that they go and they take the bodies down. It, it, they do a 20-mile, must have been like a covert midnight move. Jabez Gilead find here that Saul's dead, his children are dead, uh, most of their children are dead, and, and they're being nailed disgracefully upon the wall. And they do this covert operation, and they head out, and they take the bodies down. They take them back to Jabez Gilead. They burn and bury the bones out of respect. David says, listen, because you've done that, because you've done that, thank you. Thank you for your bravery, for your courage. First, he blesses them for their loyalty. He recognizes all that they did for the Lord's anointed. Then he prays for them. Look what he says. He says, he asks God, Father, show them steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm praying for you that God will show his character, his nature and character to you, his steadfastness and his faithfulness. That's what God declared to Moses, remember? Exodus 34. God reveals to Moses. Wouldn't show him his glory. He reveals his name and his nature. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the word chesed, loyal love. And now David is saying, may God show that to you. And then look at verse 6, very important. David gives his promise, I will do this for you. You've been kind, God's grace be upon you, and I will do this for you. Now what's interesting about that verse, what's very interesting is in the Hebrew, it doesn't mean I'm praying this blessing on you, and then I want God to do that, and then I'm going to be over here and doing it for you. That's not what David is saying. David is saying, I will do this for you. I will be the one, now catch this, I will be the one to which the Lord will show his faithfulness, will show his covenant, chesed, his loyal love to you. It will be through me. That's what David is saying. It'll be through me. I'm the one who will do good. I'm the one who will do what I've asked God to do will be through my reign and through my leadership and my rulership and the kingdom that God has established. I'm the one. That's why in verse 7, you look at his invitation. Verse 7. Now, therefore, thank you for doing it. May God's blessing be upon you. Grace is coming to you through me. Therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me, emphatic, king over Israel. Or, oh, excuse me, over them, over Judah. And David reminds them, Saul is dead, and now he invites them to come, to, 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 to the loyalty they had to Saul, the love they showed him now, he says, bring it and give it to me. They've anointed me king here. And, and he is showing them love. He is, he's expressing their kindness and tells them to come. Some people say it was a powerfully political move, trying to gain more people in his kingdom. Maybe, maybe a little bit. Got to be careful, right, with motives. Ralph David, some of you have his commentary, said this. Now, Dave, now David is mixing politics and faith. He's being both sharp and sincere. In fact, 
in his vignette, one could say David is sincerely complimentary, blatantly political, and earnestly evangelistic all at once. He's like, I don't know what his motives are, but let's throw them all out there and put them all together. That's what he's saying. David's message to the people of Gilead was wonderful message like the gospel. They're being invited to give their allegiance to God's anointed king. A king who promises to show them chesed, love, loyalty, faithfulness, grace, and favor and kindness. What does that sound like? This is what David's greatest son will do. He'll invite you and I. He invites us to get a glimpse as we get a glimpse of the king. And Jesus says, come, come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The reign of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. David says, come, Jabesh Gilead, come. You'll get grace. You'll have mercy. You'll have kindness through my reign. That's Jesus. The rule of God has come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. David is saying, come join the army. Come join us, the Lord's people. David is calling on the transfer of loyalty. God is calling on you and I to transfer our loyalties from the things of this world, the kingdoms of this world, to the true and better king, and his name is Jesus. If you remain in this kingdom, the end will be destruction and separation from God. And Jesus is saying, come. Come out of darkness. Come to the light. It is through the true and better king, Jesus the Christ, that God's covenantal eternal love and grace come to you. You have the coronation and the invitation and finally, the opposition. Whenever there's a call, there's opposition, folks. Verse eight. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Say that a couple times. And he made him king over Gilead. And the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin, all Israel. Verse 10, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, so he had more sons, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. We see a division of the kingdom already. It doesn't really happen until after Solomon, but here's the beginning of it. He reigned for two years, but the house of Judah followed David. Verse 11, and the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. The opposing kingdom set up, listen, inaugurated by human ambition. I'm not following God's way. I'm not following God's reign. I'm not following God's king. One Hebrew scholar by the name of Kiel, he says this. This is really good. The promotion of Ishbosheth as king was not only a continuation of the hostility of Saul towards David, hostility of Saul towards David, but also an open act of rebellion against Jehovah who had rejected Saul, chosen David prince over Israel, and who had given such distinct proofs of the election in the eyes of the whole nation that even Saul had been convinced of the appointment of David to be his successor upon the throne. In other words, what he's saying is everyone knows that David is next in line. Everyone has known throughout the years that David is God's man. David is God's anointed. David is the one that God has established to reign and rule over Israel. This is in the face of God. This is in opposition of the rightful king. David is the rightful king. He is God's man. He is God's anointed. And Abner's opposition really is an opposition against God himself. There's always, listen, there's always opposition to the kingdom of God. There are a lot of ish-basheths 
alternate rulers, alternate rulers seeking our praise. Things and people seeking our allegiance. Idols that seeking our worship. Jesus said no one could serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money or God and anything else. Let's draw two very important things and then we'll close. Two very important things that this passage teaches us and everything even about our core values. We'll we'll, we'll wrap that up. Number one, the church does not fight war with worldly weapons like I said before, bombs and guns and missiles. But make no mistake, the church, the gospel message means there's a battle. And we're called as a church to fight the battle, to fight the, fight the battle with swords, to release captives, to destroy fortresses, to take up weapons in our arsenal and to prepare for battle. But Ephesians 6 tells us that we put on the armor of God. That our weapons are not of this world. The breastplate of righteousness, right? Standing firm, breastplate of righteousness, shoes fit for the gospel, the sword of the spirit. We wage war, but not as the flesh does. We wage war not against, uh, uh, what does it say, uh, uh, flesh and blood, but against principalities in high places. Family, as we engage the culture, as we love people, as we demonstrate, as we said earlier, The gospel, by loving people, by being generous to people, by being kind to people, by caring for people, for supplying needs for people. And as we share with them the truth of of the perfect life, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we do those things, it's imperative that we remind ourselves that the proclamation of the gospel is war. And as we do, what do we, we don't do it angrily, we don't do it sarcastically, we don't do it in a way in which we turn people off, we love them. And we share with them the truth of the gospel. We're, we're, we're not to be mean. We're not to be hostile. But we must recognize that we're fighting an army against a fallen culture, a fallen angels, and a world that is hostile to the gospel. We're in a war. Believe it. Number two, lastly, and I'm going to ask you all this question. I'm paying attention about the kingdom of God kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Jesus, the things of this world, selfish ambition, reigning, ruling, savior of the world. Here's the question. Which king do you give your allegiance to? Which king do you give your allegiance to? And what kingdom do you belong to? The kingdom of this world? The kingdoms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from from the things of this world, the kingdoms of this world, and transferred us, that's through the gospel, to the kingdom of his beloved son. In him, in Jesus, we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Listen, King Jesus did not begin to reign in Hebron, but in heaven. He is the king who in perfect obedience exercises God's sovereign, good, reigning rule. His kingdom really is God's kingdom. Listen, there's only one true king. He sits on the right hand of God and his name is Jesus. You will either submit to that king, be purchased by his shed blood on the cross, have eternal life in him, or belong to the kingdom of this world that will vanish, be destructed, uh, will, will destruct and be separated from God from all eternity. 
we as a church hide nothing. We want you to know the gospel of redemption. We want you to know that King Jesus has come. We want you to know that he did not go to a throne but went to a cross on your behalf. We want you to know that he gave his life so you can have life. We want you to know that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and therefore all of us are called to repent and believe the gospel that he died for you. No matter what you have done, no matter where you've been, no matter what shame, no matter brokenness you've gone through, Jesus Christ loves you, died for you, rose for you, and offers you life. If you turn from your own kingdom, being your own king, and turn to him for salvation. He went to the cross. He paid the penalty. He bared the penalty for you and rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. Do you believe that this morning? The band's going to come. We're going to remain in this room. We're going to respond. After our song of response, we're going to receive this morning tithes and offering, and then we're going to celebrate as we leave. So let's respond to King Jesus. Can we do that together? Father, thank you. Father, thank you that you have rescued us. Thank you, Father, that you have redeemed us. Thank you, Father, that although sin wreaked havoc in this world, Lord, you are restoring all things. First in the promise to Adam, then the calling of Abraham, then the placement of David as king, beginning here in Hebron over Judah. But, Lord, all that points to the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who will come who will give his life, who will live a perfect life and give his life so that we can have life. God, we're asking that by your spirit as we respond in song as a people, Lord, you would have reign and rule of our life and that we would leave this place declaring the good news of the gospel and demonstrating it with love and good deeds for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.